want to say a few words before we read our text. We're now on week 11 in our series on the book of Revelation. And preaching on Revelation is fun, but it's also incredibly hard. And as uh, one pastor put it, you read the passage that's assigned to you, and then you go to the bathroom to throw up. Because you're like, what am I going to say this Sunday? So I've noticed that pastors often skip this section that we're looking at this morning. But I'm actually really excited about it, which makes me very nervous. Because what am I missing that everybody else is seeing? So before we read the text this morning, I want to do a brief recap. Chapter 1 of the book of Revelation calls this whole book a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we get a vision of Jesus walking among the lampstands, which are the churches, the ruling and reigning Christ present right now in his church. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we have the seven messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And remember, we said that these were suffering people, but Jesus says, how about we talk about you first? He has some things that he wants to speak to his church about. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we get that vision of the scroll, which contains all of God's plan for history. It's going to tell everyone where everything is going, but there's a problem. The scroll is sealed. And it's got seven seals on it. No one can open it. So everybody's crying. And then a hand is placed on the shoulder of John and says, Look, the lamb who is worthy, the lamb who is slain. He can open the scroll. And so then iron over the past couple of weeks, chapter 6 and 7, the seals are opened one by one, seal after seal after seal. And then in chapter 8 through 11, we have the seven trumpets, justice meted out by God, Christ conquering evil, on his way to making this broken world new. And then finally we come to chapter 12, which is an interlude between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And Iron gets to do another seven again next week. So uh, many scholars argue that this is the theological center of the whole book of Revelation. Where the curtain is being pulled back, we get another picture of heaven. It's wild and fantastical. And we meet a dragon and his two companions. The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. Now, I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Maybe you're not yet a Christian. Maybe you're here uh, for some other reason than to explore Christianity. Or maybe you're trying to figure it out. But before you snicker and dismiss this as ancient rubbish, it is wise to remember two things. Something can be not literal and still true. And also the words of G.K. Chesterton. Fairy tales do not tell children the dragons exist. Children already know the dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. A reading from the book of Revelation, chapters 12 through 14. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. 
She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads and the beast that I saw was like a leopard its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, 
so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The great New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham writes about how the Christians living in the cities of the province of Asia, who were the first recipients of this book of Revelation, were living in an environment where they were constantly confronted by images and messages of the Roman vision of the world. So everywhere they looked, there's architecture, there's statues, there's iconography, there's rituals and festivals. There's even cleverly engineered miracles that were happening in the temples. And all of them were communicating and celebrating the enormous power of Rome and of pagan religion. Now, we know something about living in a world surrounded by images and messaging, don't we? It's just... They come through TikTok and they come through Twitter and they come through advertising and they come through movies. Well, Bauckham goes on to say that the book of Revelation is like a series of counter images, purging our imaginations and refurbishing them with alternative visions of how the world is and will be. And that's what we're getting, not only in these two chapters, but in all of the book of Revelation. Now, There's some incredibly weird stuff in here this morning. Let's just go ahead and acknowledge that. That's okay. So I want to cheat and talk about a few things up front, um, just for those of you who are licking your chops to wonder what our opinion is on this. Uh, And for those of you who are like, I'm so lost because I'm just looking at all these numbers and I'm like, what in the world is going on here? So let's talk about some numbers first. Do you notice the number 1260 shows up in verse 12, verse 6, or chapter 12, verse 6. And then a time, times, and half a time in chapter 12, verse 14. And then 42 months in chapter 13, verse 5. Guess what? They all add up to the same. Three and a half years. And it's a metaphor. And this is actually how it rolls in Revelation. Each section that we're looking at covers the same period of time. And that is the time between Christ's first coming and his return. 
But it's coming at it from different angles, right? Now let's look at another number. 666 and the mark of the beast. And I need to say as clearly as I can that this has nothing to do with microchips and Apple watches. And I'm sorry if that is disappointing to you. And you can't use numerology to figure out if the beast is your neighbor down the street or your boss. And that might be disappointing to you as well. But uh, over, over the course of history and in interpreting the book of Revelation, people have had a, a lot of, let's just say, fun with trying to decipher what 666 means. And by the way, there's a good case that, that can be made that it's a reference to Nero. But the problem is a good case can be made that it's a reference to Muhammad and Napoleon and Stalin and Hitler and various popes and Martin Luther and guess what? Even Ronald Reagan. It is a symbol it is not a little code for you to decipher and be able to pinpoint. In fact, it's something that doesn't identify the beast, but characterizes the beast. And this is what I mean. You know, you know what the, the number of perfection is? We've seen this over and over again in the book of Revelation. It's seven. And if you want to really be like perfectly perfect, you'd say seven, seven, seven. Three sevens, right? God is holy, holy, holy. This is just a Hebraic way of doing things. So what you have in the number 666 is this, falling short of seven, completely incomplete. It's the number of a man always falling short. It's the number of all human institutions always falling short, failure upon failure upon failure. Now here's the last thing we'll talk about up front. And I think this is so cool. The devil is a copycat. He is completely unoriginal. He's a ripoff artist. And if you have eyes to see, you could easily see that the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land are like a counterfeit trinity. A counterfeit of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is what Daryl Johnson writes in his commentary. The dragon mimics God the Father. The sea beast mimics God the Son. Mortal wound. In the Greek, it's as if slain. Right? Just like the lamb who was slain. And the earth beast mimics God, the Holy Spirit. As the father gives his authority to the son, so the dragon gives his authority to the sea beast. As the Holy Spirit seeks to move us to worship the son and the father, so the earth beast seeks to, us to wor- move us to worship the sea beast and the dragon. Right? It's a counterfeit. And this is what the devil's always doing. And counterfeits are always close to the real thing in certain respects, but a million miles away from being worth anything at all. Now, the question I want us to ask this morning, and it's going to be the subject of the whole sermon, is this. Why is the Christian life so hard? If you're new to Christianity, you need to know that it is hard. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, have you ever wondered, why is this so hard? Aren't we supposed to have abundant life? Didn't Jesus say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Yes, a thousand times yes. All that is true, but there is more to the story. And Jesus is honest with us about this. So if you have ever wondered, why is the Christian life so hard? These chapters are for you. So let's start with this big point. The Christian life is a war. 
And we're going to look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 17 to get us started. The Christian life is a war because you have an enemy who hates you. And he seeks to deceive and accuse and destroy. You you already know that there's a war going on inside you, right? I mean, you feel that every single day, as I do as well. But what is happening in Revelation 12 and 13 is Jesus is pulling back the veil for John. And he is showing us that there is a war going on outside us too. That is coming at us. And it is the ultimate war. And this war has a long history. It actually goes back to the garden right after sin entered the human condition. Do you remember how it goes? The Lord God said to the serpent, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Human history is a story of the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It is the story behind the story of our lives. And what we get in Revelation 12 is an update on the unfolding story of this war. Three characters are introduced at the beginning of chapter 12. A woman, a dragon, and a child. And the dragon is pretty easy to identify. Because it's one of those few times in the book of Revelation... That John actually just, he comes out and tells us in verse 9, it's the devil. It's that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Right? And the child is not that hard to figure out either. It's Jesus. He is the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, as it says in verse 5. And this, by the way, is an echo of Psalm 2, which speaks of the Messiah and is the most quoted psalm In the whole New Testament. And by the way, it was at the beginning of our worship service. But the woman is a bit trickier to identify. I mean, she's dazzling. She's clothed with the the sun. And that's, that's pretty awesome, right? And the moon is under her feet. I mean, wow. Standing on the moon, dressed with the sun. And she has a crown of 12 stars on her head. Now, Revelation is always borrowing from the Hebrew scriptures. And so it's important to recognize that sun, moon, and stars show up in Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 7, 37. And they represent the family of Israel, the people of God. And when we read on in our passage, this woman's offspring are described as, this is verse 17 of chapter 12, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So who is this woman? Who in the world is she? Well, she represents the people of God both before and after the coming of Jesus. She is Eve. She is Mary. She is Israel. She is the church. She is God's people. You get it? And here's how the story goes. The dragon tries to kill the child. Verse 4. And this echoes Matthew's gospel where Herod the Great orders the massacre of all the little boys. That's in Matthew chapter 2. And that's a little different angle than what shows up in our traditional sanitized nativity scenes. But the dragon totally fails. Verse 5 says the child is caught up to God in his throne. And this is just a compressed account of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So the dragon roars and makes war in heaven. But we are told in verses 9 and 10 that he is thrown down from the heavenly realms. Four times it says that 
in those two verses. And you know what? It literally means he was bounced. He was bounced from the throne room. I mean, I love that. And so shouting breaks out in heaven. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Devil got bounced. He's defeated in heaven because of something that happened on earth, which is why the loud voice goes on to say in verse 11, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Now, if all this is true, If devil done got bounced, why are things still so bad? Why is the Christian life so hard? Because there's still a war. The devil is furious, it says in verses 12 and 13. And he goes on a murderous rampage. Since the dragon can't put an end to the child, he goes after the woman. And we get this little bit about she's carried on the wings of an eagle to a place where God nourishes her. Which, by the way, is the language that was used in Exodus where God says, I rescued you and carried you away on eagle's wings. Which is what God does for his people. And then, then the dragon vomits out a flood of water seeking to drown her. But the ground swallows the water that was intended to swallow the woman. And when that doesn't work, he goes after her offspring. And we get the key verse, verse 17 And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The Christian life is a war. Don't let anybody tell you any differently. You have an enemy who hates you. Now, I know some of you are like, hold up a second. Uh, Isn't this all just a bunch of primitive mythology? And let me just say this. Jesus took the devil seriously. So if you take Jesus seriously, then you need to take the devil seriously as well. And by the way, some of the greatest minds in human history took the devil seriously. And you might think it sounds unsophisticated to talk about the devil and demons. But when you consider the evils of Nazi Germany... Or the horrors of Rwanda where the Hutus turned on the Tutsis and slaughtered 800,000 of their neighbors in 100 days. Maybe it's not so unsophisticated to believe that there are personal malevolent forces of evil at work in the world. You know, virtually every culture throughout human history, there has been a, a recognition of intelligent powers of darkness. White, European, and North American culture is the exception. Because those are the people, we are the people, who think we're wiser and smarter than everybody else. And we can straighten everybody else by our great wisdom. And to quote a pastor friend of mine, there is a devil and he hates you. And he hates your children and he hates your grandchildren. He hates everything that is precious to you. And to use another quote, this one from Verbal Kent in the movie, The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. What are we told about the dragon, the devil here? Well, we're told this, he's crafty. He's called a deceiver in verse 9. And we see this from the beginning. Because from the beginning, he tried to convince us that creation will satisfy us more than the creator. That was the first temptation, by the way. Why would God keep you from that tree? That tree is life. 
He's holding out on you. That tree will be good for you. Don't trust him. Listen to your heart. And then he goes on and on and on to say, look, you need to say no to God and yes to you. Because no one loves you like you do. And you're going to do so much better under your own rule and authority than under God's. First, he deceives. But then after he deceives, you know what he does? He accuses. Because he's also an accuser. Verse 10. He shows up on the scene. He says, jeez, look at the mess you have made. Look at the broken relationships in your life. How could anyone love you? How could God love you? He knows the complete record of your failure and sins, and he will bury you if you let him. He loves to hassle God's people with his accusations. But hear the good news. You can call this bluff because he's been bounced. God's people overcome by the blood of the lamb. It covers their sin. It silences the evil one's accusations. And by the way, we do this every Sunday. When you confess your sins, you are overcoming the evil one. But don't be fooled. You're in a war. He's at war with you. And he wants to wreck you and ruin you. And by the way, I just want you to notice, since we're using all this war language, that nowhere in this passage are we called to take up a sword. Nowhere. We do not conquer by taking up a sword, but by laying down our lives. Because as verse 11 goes on to say, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And hold on to that for a moment until we get to chapter 13. But are you ready for some more good news? I sure am. The dragon makes war, but God sustains his people. Do you notice that two times in this passage we hear about the woman, God's people, being taken to the wilderness where she is nourished by God? First in verse 6 and then again in verse 14. God has so many ways that he does this for his people. You know, I heard a, a story recently about a woman named Sharon Hirsch. And she is a Christian counselor in the Denver area. And uh, she's had quite a go of it in life. She has struggled with addictions Throughout most of her life, uh, she's been divorced. She's been battered and bruised by all sorts of circumstances. And in 2020, she wrote a book called Belonging. And in that book, she writes about the time that she learned her daughter had OD'd and was being rushed to the hospital. Her car was in the shop, so she had to call an Uber. And when that Uber came, it was a pickup truck driven by an old man, and he can tell that she's very troubled. So he asks her, is, is everything okay? And she blurts out, I think my daughter just tried to kill herself. I want you to imagine all that must have been going through her mind, that feeling of failure as a parent, that helplessness against the darkness. But this is what she writes. For the rest of the ride to Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital, my Uber driver sang. He drove carefully, he kept his eyes on the road, and sang verses I didn't even know to accompany the familiar chorus, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Who gets an old man in a pickup truck as your Uber driver, who sings hymns to you when you go to find out whether your daughter is still alive. You know who gets that? 
God's children get that. God nourishes his people in the midst of the war. He does it over and over and over again. The Christian life is a war because you have an enemy who hates you. And he will seek to deceive and accuse and destroy. But God will sustain you and the victory is assured even though there are many skirmishes and battles until that great day when what is true will be fully and finally revealed. Now, if you're in a war, it's best to know all the tactics of your enemy. And so the story rolls on into chapter 13 to better prepare God's people. And it tells us that not only is the Christian life a war, it is a war on many fronts. And as part of the dragon's strategy of making war on the saints, he recruits two allies. The beast from the sea, that's verses 1 through 10, which is political power that seeks to crush the church. And then the beast from the land, verses 11 through 18, which is religious power that seeks to corrupt the church. So interesting, isn't it? Revelation is bringing up two no-no topics, religion and politics. So we got to talk about them. So let's do that. The beast from the sea. The first uh, uh, beast that we are introduced to here in chapter 13 is political power that seeks to crush the church. Now, first readers of Revelation had no trouble just getting this. Like you and I have no trouble with political cartoons in our day. If you grew up during the Cold War, do you remember the cartoon of Uncle Sam wrestling the bear? Who's the bear? The Soviet Union, right? Yeah, okay. I, was, I heard some like slight mumbles here. If you grew up in the Cold War, I guess maybe some of you didn't. If you grew up in the Cold War, you just knew it, right? United States in conflict with the Soviet Union. So the first readers knew that the beast from the sea was government power seeking to crush God's people. But how do we know? How do we know? Well, there's horns, heads, and crowns, symbols of imperial power. That's verse 1. Then we're told in verse 2, it was like a leopard and a bear and a lion, which is imagery drawn from Daniel chapter 7, which had four beasts coming out of the sea, the first like a lion, the second like a bear, the third like a leopard, and the fourth had ten horns, just like this beast we see coming out of the sea. And we're told in Daniel 7 that they represent four consecutive kings in their kingdoms all of which end up getting smashed by the Son of Man, by the way. What we have here is a general principle, multiple manifestations, repeated patterns, empire after empire after empire arrayed against God's people. And we're also told in verse 2 that this beast gets its power from the dragon. The dragon energizes and endorses the work of the first beast, which Christians... Got to recognize evil resides not only in individuals, but also in institutions. And then in verse 3, we're told something fascinating. One of its heads had a mortal wound that is healed, and the whole world marvels. And it's this description of you think you got rid of it, but it just keeps coming back. And you know what? It reminds me of the first Captain America movie. Do you remember this? When, when he just became Captain America and he's chasing the Hydra agent, uh, dives down in the water and pulls him out. And the dude pops the suicide pill. But before he dies, he says, hail Hydra, cut off one head and two more shall take its place. That's some good theology of evil right there, by the way. The resilience of evil empire 
leaves the world enamored with its power. Verse 4, you know, evil empires can seem so powerful, invincible, people worship. Isn't it crazy how often in human history vicious dictators are adored? But it happens again and again and again, and it's the work of the beast from the sea. Resistance seems futile, so the people worship, saying, Who is like the beasts? Which is a counterfeit song to what God's people sang in Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like our God? See, the devil's a ripoff artist. The first beast represents empires and governments and institutions that seek to usurp the place of God and crush the church. The time Revelation was written, it was Rome. All seven churches lived under Roman rule. Rome was trying to snuff out the church through violent force. The first readers got it, and you want to know why? Because they were taking it in the teeth. Because they would not bow to Roman authority, because they would not say Caesar is Lord. They would not go along with the paganism of their neighbors, and they paid the cost. But at any time, it could be any nation or society that acts like this. And you know, you don't hear this text quoted very often at presidential prayer breakfasts. Yet human history is filled with governments that act like this. You know, sometimes it's pretty obvious. Uh, Did you know that in 2020, the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom uh, gave a report? And they identified that Christians in Burma, China, Eritrea, India, Iran, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Vietnam are persecuted in these countries or labeled countries of particular concern by the U.S. Department of State. Because the governments engage in toleration of or severe violations of religious freedom. The beast rages on right now in our world, in our day, and it's often obvious. But you know what? Sometimes it's more subtle. That empire smothers through intimidation. Conform or else. Conform or be labeled maladapted. Conform or, 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 or lose out on the possibility of prosperity and advancement. When the state seeks to play God, it doesn't become divine. It becomes demonic. You see, the state can be a wonderful servant. But it makes a horrible savior. Government is a gift of God. It's ordained by him. But Satan's game is to take really good gifts from God, whether that be sex or wine or technology or money, and pervert them in order to ruin lives and destroy creation. Let me just say this. We are so vulnerable to the pretensions of politics in our day. Of looking to the state as if it's Messiah. And it comes at us from the left and from the right, promising the remedy for all ills, moral and economic and social and medical and spiritual. We can make you well. We can make you whole. We can give you the life you've always wanted. And in America, we have elevated government and politics above God. Just look at the reaction of the last two presidential elections. All the passion, all the money, all the anger and rage. It's exactly what the beast wants. The beast wants your entire allegiance and he wants it from everyone. Verse 7, he's described as like a counter image to Jesus. Gathering people from every tribe, tongue and nation. 
He wants your allegiance. And if he doesn't get it, he will devour you. But guess what? Even if he gets it, he'll devour you anyways. Because that's what he does. That's what he wants. He wants to destroy. Christians live within this tension between respect for government, but also refusal to go along with its divine pretensions. It's haughty and blasphemous words. And refusing to go along sometimes comes at great cost, which is why our text goes on to say, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You know what the devil wants more than anything else? He wants you to believe that following Jesus isn't worth it. But it is precisely in those moments when it costs us something that we bear the greatest witness to how worthy Jesus really is. Remember chapter 12, verse 11. We conquer evil not by taking up the sword, but by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, by not loving our lives even unto death. Some of you may be familiar with the name Joseph's psalm. Uh, He was a pastor in Romania who was exiled by the communist government in 1981. And the, the Romanian government at the time was seeking to crush the church. So they would arrest people. And Joseph Song got arrested many times. And they would tie prisoners to crosses and smear them in human excrement. They would torture them with red hot pokers. They would even put spoonfuls of salt down their throat and then keep them from water. Joseph Son was arrested and tortured and released over and over and over again before his exile. And each time he would say, go ahead and kill me. It'll make my sermons more popular. My preaching will speak ten times louder after I'm gone. This is a man who conquered by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. A man who loved not his own life even unto death. A man who bore witness to the beauty and glory and worthiness of Jesus. A man that God used his witness to spread the gospel not only to Romania, but all over the world. There's a quote attributed to an early church father, Tertullian. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can't kill Christianity through persecution. You just end up spreading its seed around. By the way, one little note here. The beast has no power unless it's given it. That language is used. God is the one who gives it the breath to blaspheme and oppress and intimidate for a season. Why would God allow the heat and the pressure? Well, that deserves a sermon series. But one thing we know is that hot temperatures and intense pressure can produce diamonds. The temperature and the pressure can make a diamond out of you. And that's what God wants. His name will be vindicated through his people who patiently endure. They bear witness that he is worth it. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. But you're going to need more than endurance. You're going to need discernment. You're going to need wisdom. And this is the last part because there's another front that this war is taking place on. The beasts from the earth. And this is religious deception that corrupts the church. The first beast scares and intimidates. The second beast deceives. This beast is dragon-manipulated religious power and institution. Later called the false prophet in the book of Revelation. It's like the second beast runs PR for the first beast. It says, he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It's the propaganda machine. 
And in first century Asia Minor, priests of the imperial cult served as propagandists for Rome. And get this, they were known for their trickery. They were able to use pulleys to make statues look like they were moving, to use ventriloquism to make statues look like they were talking. They used fake lighting, all kinds of stuff. And in the modern world, totalitarian governments, you know what they utilize more than anything else? Religious propaganda. Over and over again, false religion supporting the state, rinse, repeat. And the beast from the earth tries to deceive through signs and wonders. He mimics the great signs done by Moses. He mimics the fire come, come down from heaven by Elijah. He's going to do whatever it takes to get the church to start believing in the political vision for the world. And he's imitating and mimicking Jesus, putting his mark on people. Now, get this. Jesus puts his mark on people. We've seen that in Revelation. And just at the end of this, in chapter 14, we see that his name and the Father's name are imprinted on the foreheads of the people worshiping on Mount Zion. Is it literal? No, but it's real. And it's a way of saying his character stamped on his people. It's not a tattoo. It's not a microchip under the skin, right? It's the character of the beast implanted in your soul, lived out in life. And you know how this works, right? Is that churches get caught up in the political vision and they start smothering you with what it means to live a good and virtuous and whole and healthy life according to a political outlook. And if you're not buying it, you're labeled as maladapted. And if you don't play along, you're going to have a hard go in life. The beast from the earth works within the church to get it to play along. And I don't know how to say this nicely, but Christians in North America are especially vulnerable to this. We have overinvested our allegiance to our favorite political party. And it happens on the left and it happens on the right. No Christian should feel completely at home in any political party. Because no political party represents the kingdom of God. Look at how Christianity is being reduced to a mascot of the left and the right right now. Instead of something different altogether reshaping the conversation in light of the gospel. If your understanding of Christianity is pretty much synonymous with the platform of either political party, you're probably under the spell of the beast from the earth. Have a healthy suspicion of political institutions. Hold your loyalties lightly. By all means, have well-formed political opinions, but do not confuse those with theological convictions. Only God can save. The state cannot. This calls for wisdom, discernment, don't be a fool. You have an enemy and he hates you. And he's at war with you and he seeks to deceive and accuse and destroy. And he will use political power to seek to crush the church and religious deception to seek to corrupt the church. Let me end with this. Remember Richard Bauckham's word I shared in the beginning about these visions refurbishing our imagination about the way the world is and one day will be. In chapter 14, we're given another vision. And it's a stunning vision of the Lamb leading worship on Mount Zion. Mount Zion makes you think of Psalm 2, how we opened our worship service, where God says, I have installed my king on Zion. And Psalm 2 is all about the nations rebelling against God. And God answers by pointing to the king he has put on his holy mountain and says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this king, surprise, surprise, is a lamb. A lamb 
who was slain. God has won the victory through the cross. Run for refuge to this king. Standing with this king in Mount Zion are 144,000, which is not a statistic. It's a symbolic number. We've seen this before in chapter 7. John heard the number 144,000. Chapter 7, verse 4, but when he looked, he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language. A picture of the fullness of God's people. Brazilians and Norwegians, Arabs and Kenyans, Japanese and Russian. A multicultural, multilingual, multiracial, transnational community. That's the Lamb's kingdom. And on their foreheads are stamped the name of Christ and the name of God the Father. They're all there with the king and they're ready to sing a new song. Everywhere you turn in the book of Revelation, God's people are singing and worshiping. Because worship is the heartbeat of the Christian life. The church is a worshiping community. It is our response to the Lamb's victory and it is our protest against the powers. And you might be saying... Man, uh, worship seems like a pretty weak weapon in a war. But the proof is in the history books. The Greek empire is no more. The Roman empire is no more. Nazi Germany is no more. The Soviet Union is no more. But the church lives on. Because the lamb is on the throne. And worship leaves its mark on you. What you worship will form and shape you. It will form and shape your character. You will be marked by the image of what you worship. So let's return to the question we asked at the beginning. Why is the Christian life so hard? Well, it's because it's a war. And it's a war because you have an enemy who hates you and he seeks to deceive and accuse and destroy. And he'll use political power to try to crush the church. And he'll use religious deception to try, uh, to, try to corrupt the church. But God sustains his people as we are formed and shaped in worship. And the victory is sure. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Because death is not the end. A new world is coming. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for these startling images that grab us by the heart and by the gut. And we pray, Lord, that they would do their work in our lives. That you would make us a people of endurance and you'd make us a people of discernment. But most of all, you'd make us a people who lay down our lives in self-sacrificial love as we follow Jesus. Lord, form us and shape us in worship. Form us and shape us in the life of this community that we might be your people who bear witness to the beauty and glory of Jesus and his kingdom and guard us and protect us from being deceived. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.